If you'll please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at Hebrews 9 verses 11 through 14. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there's one there in the pew rack in front of you. And we'd invite you to pick that up and uh, open up God's Word with us as we walk through it this morning. Uh, We've been walking through the book of Hebrews. And in recent weeks, we've looked at how the writers walked us through the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Particularly how the Old Covenant points us towards the New Covenant. Uh, The old covenant that's referred to here was the covenant that God made with Moses on the mountain where he gave the law to his people. It was a conditional covenant where he told his people, if you obey me, I will bless you. And if you disobey me, I will curse you. And so that's why we see the writer of Hebrews reminding us about how God's people uh, did not obey and they were not faithful and they didn't experience uh, the fruition of all those things God had offered them because they didn't obey. But he uses this to point us towards a better covenant, a greater covenant, the new covenant, that's based on Christ's obedience, not ours. And he continues to do that in chapter 9 by helping us to see how the offering that was made through the blood of Jesus Christ is so much greater than the offering that was made in the old covenant tabernacle. And that's what we're going to look at today as we look at Hebrews 9 verses 11 through 14. And so if you're able to, out of reverence for God's word, if you would stand as I read today's passage for us again we stand just to acknowledge that this word that we are hearing this is not man's word it is God's word it's his instruction to us we stand because we desire to to be sober as we address the word and to listen to the word and to seek to understand how we might apply the word and this is what God's word says to us Hebrews 9 beginning in verse 11 but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If you would, pray with me. Father, we have the opportunity now to to worship You, to serve You, our living God. and We can only do that. Uh, through your Son, Jesus Christ, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I I pray for us in this time. I I pray when our minds might be distracted by other things that you would help us to remember and consider the gospel. I pray in a time when perhaps there are some of us here who who don't know what that gospel means or or what it means to apply that gospel to our lives, that you might help to open up our eyes to see it. Uh, Lord, that our, our focus, that our joy would come in this time from remembering the power of the blood of Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Came across a survey recently that caught my attention. It was about phobias. Phobia actually comes from a Greek word that means fear and and you're very familiar with phobias. We talk about things like you know, arachnophobia. It's a fear of spiders. There's all types of phobias. And the reason uh, this particular article interested me, interested me because 
it talked about the, the phobias in each state. In other words, what are people the most afraid of in each state in our nation? And some of these I'm not too sure about, but I'll go through a few with you. Uh, Alabama, which is where Pastor Nick's family is from, uh, the most common phobia there is glossophobia, which is the fear of public speaking, which Pastor Nick obviously does not have. But uh, in Georgia, where Pastor Matt is from, I cannot pronounce the name of it, but he can, and he's all the way in the back, and he'll shout it out. It's ophidiophobia. I can't say it, but I've got it. It's the fear of snakes. And so you should have it too. Uh, we all should have it. Somebody after first service said, oh, you've got to understand, there's good snakes and bad snakes. And I prayed for their soul because there's no, no such, that's like there's a good flu and a bad flu. Uh, they're all bad. And Jesus is on my side here. Because Genesis 3.15, he's going to crush the head of the serpent. So if you've got a WWJD bracelet, what would Jesus do? He would step on the snake. And so you should too. But anyways, fear of snakes. Uh, North Carolina, that's where my wife and I are from. Aquaphobia, that's the fear of water. Which I find particularly interesting because half of the state's surrounded by water. Uh, but that's what people are afraid of. And you're probably wondering, well, what are we afraid of in Kentucky? Tripophobia. You might have tripophobia. It's the fear of holes. Now, I'm just going to do a little scientific survey. Is anybody in this room, you're scared of holes? Like you almost didn't make it to church today because you thought there was going to be a hole you might fall in? Or I don't know if it has to do with sinkholes or what it is, but according to an internet survey, which those are very reliable, Kentucky's afraid of holes. Uh, and then Virginia, uh, that's where my dad's family is from, mom's family is from. We just got back from it is hemophobia, uh, which is the fear of blood. And I do believe that one um, because I've met a number of people who have something related to hemophobia. And maybe you know of people like that. Maybe you have that where just the sight of blood, uh, you will faint. Uh, maybe even the discussion of blood, which means this is going to be a really hard sermon for you uh, because this sermon's all about the blood of Jesus. And in fact, if you've got that type of fear, that type of phobia about talking about blood, then you're going to struggle with the New Testament uh, because there's a reference to blood about a hundred times in the New Testament. And in the book of Hebrews alone, about 25 of those references, about a fourth of the references to blood in the New Testament are in the book of Hebrews. But if you study Hebrews, you understand why. Uh, because the writer here is drawing this comparison and, and this contrast between the Old and the New Covenant. And blood was so significant in the Old Covenant because there were blood offerings made for people's sin. But of course we see in the Scripture those offerings could not purify the heart. They could not make a person's heart clean. They could not fully atone for sin. They were to point towards the blood of the spotless Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. But if you know, somebody's got a phobia, they're in trouble. But, but even more troubling than that is kind of a movement within liberal theology today. And it's really not new. It's been around for a while. But there are many who just don't want to talk about things related to the blood of Christ. Uh, there are churches that you'll go in today, and you're not going to sing hymns like we sang today about the blood of Jesus. And you're not going to study passages like Hebrews 9 that talk about the blood of Jesus. Because there's a lot of people who, who, who just find that disturbing and troubling, and they just want to move on towards other things. Now, they want to talk about redemption and mercy and grace, but, but they don't want to talk about a blood-stained cross. 
And there's some that have moved so far in that effort that they think we should remove references to the blood of Jesus entirely from our faith. Uh, One of these liberal theologians that I read said it this way. He said, I would choose to loathe rather than to worship a deity who required the sacrifice of his son. They look to the cross and they see some type of uh, supernatural child abuse. They look to the blood of Jesus and they see something that's just grotesque and abusive. They, They don't see what the scripture says of it. They want to have a bloodless Christianity. But for those of us who study God's word and understand the gospel, there's no such thing as a bloodless Christianity. You can't have redemption without the blood of Jesus. You can't have mercy without the blood of Jesus. You can't experience the grace of God without the blood of Jesus. And that's really, I think, the point that the writer of Hebrews is bringing home for us here. Because remember again that this was written to a group of Hebrew believers who were troubled and were being tempted to walk away from their new faith in Christ. And so the writer here is saying, if you walk away from Christ, you are walking away from the blood of Christ. And if you walk away from the blood of Christ, then all you have are the blood of bulls and goats, and that will not cleanse your heart. And so he helps his readers and helps us to see while you can't have a bloodless Christianity, why the blood of Christ is so important to us, and while we sing that there definitely is power, power, wonder-working power through the precious blood of the Lamb. And so let's look to what that power is as we walk through this passage today. Beginning with the first point there I put in your outline. Number one, uh, the blood of Christ secures our redemption. The blood of Christ stands out to us over the blood of all these old covenant offerings because it and it alone secures our redemption. Now remember, there's a contrast here. and The writer is helping the readers and us to see this contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. In the old covenant, you had a sacrificial system. In the old covenant, you had offerings of these bulls and goats, but the blood of those things could not atone for sin. But what he's pointing us towards is the sacrifice that could atone for sin. That's why in his discussion in our last passage as he was reviewing uh, all these things in the tabernacle and the offerings in the tabernacle, he made mention of until the time of Reformation. He was pointing forward to the next sentence that he was going to write about that time of Reformation that would come through Jesus Christ. And that's why we read in verse 11, but when Christ appeared. So this is the time of Reformation. And again, he reminds us, he appeared as high priest. Now, we've talked about this quite a bit as we walk through Hebrews together. That picture in the tabernacle, that high priest who could go in one day a year into the most holy place and sprinkle that blood of the offering there on the mercy seat on behalf of their sin and on behalf of the sin of the people. And and that picture we have of Jesus who, who goes in not through the blood of an animal, but through His own blood and how His blood is what then guarantees our entrance into this holy place and how that's the place He's in now. Yeah, that He's seated at the right hand of the Father. That His work is finished once for all. And that work, we're reminded here, is through His blood, which the writer says secures 
an eternal redemption. An eternal redemption. Now that, that phrase, that word, was very significant to the Hebrew people when they would hear it. It would call their attention back to the Exodus. And it would call their attention back to what God did with His people when they were in captivity in Egypt. Remember, the writer keeps taking us back there. and That's for a reason, because it's such a picture of our salvation in the New Covenant today. Because what God did there is He sent Moses as the deliverer. And Moses as the mediator. And Moses was the one who went to the people and went to the Pharaoh on behalf of God and spoke God's word. For example, we see in Exodus chapter 6, the Lord tells Moses this, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Remember, they were enslaved for hundreds of years. They could not free themselves. God says, I'm going to bring you out from under that burden and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you. I'll redeem you. That that word redeem meant that He was going to purchase them out of their slavery. This was an ancient word that, that went back to the slave trade. And we see this in the Scripture where people often were, were sold into slavery because of the great indebtedness they had. We see how people were enslaved during battle as nations would conquer their nation and they become enslaved. But particularly when someone was sold into slavery because of their indebtedness, they could be redeemed. And in order to redeem them, the price of their redemption had to be paid. The price that was owed, the debt that they owed, had to be paid. And when it was paid, then they were a free person. So what God said to His people is you are indebted. You are enslaved in Egypt. You cannot free yourselves. But I will redeem you. He goes on to say, I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be My people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians and I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And so God tells His people, I'm going to rescue you from Egypt and I'm going to take you all the way to the land of promise. But we know that a lot of them did not make it. In fact, the writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 3.17 that many of them died in the wilderness. So, so how can that be? How can it be that God said, I'm going to take you from here and I'm going to put you here, and yet they did not make it? Was that because God was not faithful? No. This was the insufficiency of the Old Covenant. It's because the people did not obey God. And the people were not faithful to God. And because of their disobedience, we're reminded in Hebrews, many of them died in the wilderness along the way. And that's where the old covenant falls short. And so the writer here brings all of this up as a contrast to help us to see that we too, like the Hebrews of old, we too were enslaved to our sin. The Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. We are born enslaved to sin. But God, through Jesus Christ, redeems us. He pays for us. He purchases us through the blood of Jesus. And He calls us to a land of promise. And the difference for us is that journey, that arrival in a new heaven and a new earth is based on Christ's faithfulness and on Christ's obedience. And therefore, it is a better, guaranteed, secured 
redemption that he offers us. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 4 that it's through the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that we've been sealed for the day of redemption. And so I think the very first thing we, we see here that we need to appreciate about the blood of Jesus is that it's the blood of Jesus that secures our redemption. It's not our obedience. It's not our faithfulness. In fact, if it was relying on that, then we would fall in the wilderness as well. I heard a pastor say once, if we could lose our salvation, we would. We struggle to have faith. We struggle to be consistent. We struggle to obey. But the good news of the gospel is that our day of redemption is not secured on our faithfulness and our obedience. Our day of redemption is not secured on our efforts or on our merits. Our day of redemption is secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in this we should rejoice. And we see as well, point two there, that the blood of Jesus is what purifies our conscience. Now again, there's a, there's a contrast here. We've seen the conscience mentioned already. You may recall just that last passage we looked at. He talked about how all these offerings could not purify the conscience. They could clean the hands, but they, they couldn't clean the heart. And now he comes back and says, but, but through Jesus... Jesus and Jesus alone, well, the conscience can be purified. All these other things could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but through the blood of Jesus, now our conscience could be made pure. He's calling our attention back to that old covenant. And one of the issues with it was that the conscience couldn't be made clean, and so people had a guilty conscience. And that's something maybe you can identify with. I mean, have you ever had a guilty conscience? Have you ever done something... And you felt terrible about it. And it just weighed on you. Now, I remember the first time as a believer that, that I experienced a guilty conscience. Uh, I became a Christian my freshman year of college. And, and I didn't know anything about anything. Somebody came to my dorm room and shared the gospel with me. And I responded in repentance and faith. And from day one I started to learn and grow. But, but I just didn't know much about anything. And I remember specifically that, that first semester in college as a brand new believer, uh, I was in a class that I was, it, it was a hard class, I, I was struggling, I had a test, and I was sitting there taking my test, and, and I remember I was just struggling trying to finish this test and even praying, Lord, just help me with these answers. And I, and I kid you not, this is not elaborate preacher making up a story to make a point, I promise you this happened. I, I'm sitting there in the front row taking this test, and as I'm struggling and praying that I can figure out the answers, I look up and the professor's standing in front of me and he literally has the answer key facing me like this. And this is how messed up my new faith was. I was like, thank you, Jesus. You, you just answered my prayer. And so I just started writing them down. I'm like, this, this is pretty cool. This is how this works. I don't know this how this works, but it's working. So I, I write down these answers and I'm just, I mean, I'm kind of excited that God provided that way. And then the guilty conscience came. And I turned that test in and I left that uh, building and, and where I'd had that test and immediately I, I was just overwhelmed with guilt. And I started to realize I'd done something wrong. Now, now understand, this is my confessional moment. I had cheated before. I, I was a non-believer in high school and uh, I remember specifically taking French. I can't speak a lick of French now and the reason I can't is because I cheated my way through French. I had a substitute teacher one time, and we convinced the substitute that we were allowed to take the, the teacher's copy of all the tests to make copies uh, for future tests, and we took it, and we made copies of the answer key, and that's how I got through French. And 
Can't speak a lick of it. If French invade, I'm in trouble. I don't know any of it. Because I cheated. And I'll tell you something. As a non-believer, I really didn't feel guilty about it. It was wrong. It was sin. But I just didn't feel that guilty about it. But man, after I did that as a new believer, I just felt rotten and I felt this guilty conscience. So again, I didn't know anything about anything. So I think, well, I've got to do something to make up for it. So there, there was Hillsborough Street, which was right beside North Carolina State's campus. There were all types of people there. And I remember walking out of that test, feeling guilty, seeing a homeless guy, and giving him the money in my pocket, and thinking, well, that'll take care of it. You know, I, I feel bad, so I've got to do something to do good, so I can tip the scales here. But of course, that, that didn't get rid of my guilty conscience. And so I kept going, and I tried a couple other things, and I realized that this isn't working. And so just a couple of days later, I met with a guy who had been leading a Bible study that I started going to, and I'm, I'm telling him this story, and he's just kind of looking at me, and, uh, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. And he says, Richard, you, you're not going to buy your way out of this. Your good doesn't outweigh your bad. Hey, he took me to 1 John 1.9, which says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He said, the first thing you need to do is you need to get right with God. And he walked me through that process. He said, now there's something else you need to do. You, you need to get right with that professor. You, you need to go and you need to confess to them what you did. And so I did that. And they were gracious. He, of course, counted those things wrong, dealt with it. But uh, things moved forward and I didn't have a guilty conscience anymore. But I learned an important lesson. And the lesson is this, that a lot of times this guilt we feel over our sin, we think that somehow we can balance the scales. We think that somehow if we turn around and do some good stuff, that's going to make up for it. So some of us, we have said terrible things to people we love. And rather than seek forgiveness and reconciliation, we try to buy affections. We try to turn around and do something nice for them. Some of us have done awful things, things people don't know about, and we think, well, if I just do some better stuff over here, I'll make up for it. Maybe some of you are here at church today because of this. Maybe you did something you thought, well, if I go to church on Sunday, that, that'll make up for it. But that's not the way it works. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. The blood of Jesus Christ can make us new. That does not happen through our merit or our attempts to balance scales. And what the writer here is saying is look at this old system. He refers to it as dead works. He says all these attempts to make yourself clean, all, all these ritual ceremonies to, to cleanse yourself, and yet the heart remained guilty. The conscience remained guilty. Until, he says, the day of Jesus Christ. That is what he tells us there in verses 13 and 14 that purifies our conscience. And again, he gives this contrast. He, he talks about the blood of goats and bulls, and that, that's really just a reference to that whole ceremonial system. Hey, he talks here about the ashes of a heifer. Now, there was actually part of this ceremonial cleansing when there was an offering made of a heifer. They would take the ashes and they mix it with water and they would kind of sprinkle it on people who had become ceremonially unclean. And that could happen a number of ways. But to get rid of that uncleanliness, they had to go through this ceremony to be made clean. And what he's saying is that, yeah, in the Old Covenant, you could go through a ceremony and you could get clean hands. But you didn't get a clean heart. You need the New Covenant. You need the blood of Jesus to get a new heart and a clean heart. And that's what's so significant about the blood of Christ. It's only through the blood of Jesus that our conscience can be made clean. 
So you might be here this morning and you're weighed down with some stuff and you're burdened with some stuff and you've been trying to balance those scales. I've got great, wonderful news for you. (laughs) You can stop trying and you can start trusting. You can stop behaving and you can start believing. Now, our belief and our trust will most definitely affect then how we live. We'll get to that in a moment. But, But we can't make ourselves better. We need the gospel of Jesus, and we need the blood of Jesus. And that is why we say, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but my best efforts? No. Nothing but what? The blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, oh precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And if you've experienced that cleansing work, then you know what a precious thing it is that Christ shed his blood for you. We see that it is the blood of Christ that secures our redemption. It's the blood of Christ that purifies our conscience. And third, it's the blood of Christ that sanctifies our service. It makes our service pure. It sanctifies our service. So so there's a part for works to play. You know, when I say stop behaving and start believing, I don't mean start disbehaving or doing bad things. No, when we truly believe, when we truly trust, well, then that, that, that works, that, that purifies these works. And so we've said it many times, we don't work our way towards salvation. Good works don't save us. But saving faith should produce good works. There's absolutely a role of works in your faith. It's what Madison talked about during the offering. There should be fruit of our faith. There should be fruit of our salvation. And the blood of Jesus Christ sanctifies this fruit in this service. So now we can work in response to the gospel, not in order to be saved. He points this out again by talking about this contrast between dead works and service to our living God there in verse 14. He says the blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And again, these dead works, that's a reference to what people did in the Old Covenant to try to make their conscience clean. I mean, imagine for a second what it was to live under that system. You have a bad day. Maybe you lose your temper with the kids. Maybe things aren't going well on your farm with your crops and your livestock. Maybe you go into a deal and and you don't operate with integrity and, and you kind of tilt the scales towards profiting dishonestly and and you're weighed down by this heavy conscience. And so under this old covenant system, then you've got this opportunity to bring the the best that you've got to make an offering, a, a sacrifice to God to atone for your sin. But maybe you don't give the best you've got. <laughs> maybe you're looking around at your lamb and your flock and you're thinking, well, I'd, I'd much rather keep this one for me and... The Lord won't mind. Nobody will know. I'll just take this one. They won't know that's not my best. And Maybe you've gone through shortchanging and doing all these things and then you go and you hand off this offering to the priest. Your conscience is still guilty. Every time you go home and look at that flock, you remember I, I didn't give my best to the Lord. Every time you look at your kids you yelled at, you're reminded, I, I'm going to lose it again with them. Your heart has not been changed. Maybe ceremonially you've been made clean, but, but you don't have a clean heart. But, but then along comes this new covenant. 
One that's not based on dead works like those, but one that's based on a service to a living God that's rooted in the blood of Jesus Christ. And now, through the blood of Christ, you've been made clean. You've actually been forgiven. You can look at your kids that you got angry with and you can say, I'm sorry and I need to ask you to forgive me and I need to tell you about Jesus who died on the cross for dads who are going to lose their temper. You can go back to those people you did wrong business deals with and you can make up for it and you say, listen, just like you see in the Scripture, look, take, take more than what I took from you. I want to make this right because Jesus has bought me and forgiven me and I'm a new person now. You're not trying to earn your way towards anything. You're doing that in response to the Gospel that has redeemed you. And that's what he says here. We've been saved to serve a living God. That means that we worship God. And that's not just what we do when we come here on the Lord's Day. That means that, that you and I, we, we were created to worship God every single day in all that we do. Where we're created to serve God every single day in whatever we do. And someone who spoke and wrote about this well was Pastor theologian Charles Spurgeon. He, he said it this way. To serve the living God is necessary. Necessary. To the happiness of a living man. For this end we were made and we miss the design of our making if we do not honor our maker. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If we miss that end, we are ourselves terrible losers. The service of God is the element in which alone we can fully live. And some of you know this because you've experienced it. So some of you are frustrated this morning. You have, you have met every place you thought you'd meet. I've climbed the ladder. I've gotten success. I've got the family. I've got money in the bank. And yet I'm not truly fulfilled. That there's something missing. And that's because God didn't create you to be made whole by your job and your family and your finances and these other things. They're blessings. They're good things. But they're not going to make you whole again. The only thing that will make us whole is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Spurgeon's saying here is that to really live is not only to understand the gospel, but to live in response to the gospel so that everything, everything around us is changed and affected by our relationship with God. We, we, we stop holding these silly grudges and we forgive because Christ has forgiven us. Well, we stop withholding mercy. We show mercy. Why? Because God has shown mercy to us. These trivial things that we get so concerned and worn out about become super less significant because of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's the most important thing when we truly understand it and when we truly respond to it. And so the question this morning is the question for us each Lord's Day. Have we truly responded to the gospel? Or better yet, how, how do you know if your works right now, if they're just dead works or if they're actually service to the living God? Because you can be doing the same thing for, for both reasons. So, for example, take reading your Bible. You might read your Bible as a dead work. Well, if I just read it enough, then... then I'm checking this off. I'm doing what I should. Or, or maybe you're struggling with something. Well, if I just read my Bible, it'll be better. I mean, we, we treat this like it's some mystical book sometimes rather than coming to it to know the living God and to know the will of God. 
And so when you read the Bible, are you reading it to know God or are you reading it to appease your guilty conscience? That tells you whether it's a dead work or service to a living God. Or our prayer. Are you praying in response to God's Word? Do you often pray things like, not my will, but your will be done? Or are your prayers more prayers of desperation in response to crises? We see plenty of examples of that in Scripture. We see that in the ancient Hebrews there in their slavery in Egypt. They didn't cry out to God saying, God, we just want to worship you. Uh, We just want to know you more. No, they cried out to God, God, get us out of this. And oftentimes, that's how we pray, that prayer of desperation. God, get me out of this. Get this person out of this. Just just do this. God, we desperately need you. And often, we pray that at times when, when we're desperate. If that's all that we ever pray, that might be an indication that we don't truly know and serve God. And we're not praying in response to His Word and praying for His will. I think the greatest one we see here is salvation. Are, are our works an attempt to be saved or are our works a result of being saved? These are questions we need to ask as we come to the Scripture. And the good news is that the Scripture gives us the answer to the questions. <laughs> and the answer is the blood of Jesus. Is your focus this morning on the blood of Christ? Are you thankful this morning for the blood of Christ? Are you a new person because of the blood of Jesus? Or are you still trying to fix yourself? Clean yourself up and balance those scales. If you are, the call today is repent and trust in Christ. And maybe you've done that. Maybe you've repented, but you've fallen back into that works mentality. You've fallen into that God helps those who help themselves. No. God helps those who can't help themselves. We, we cannot save ourselves. Only Christ can, and it's through His blood. And so we're going to take a moment now just to respond to God's Word, to to worship God, to thank Him for what He's done for us. And so as we do that, we want to offer a time of response. This is a time where if you have questions about the Gospel, it may be that God's been working in your life through the Gospel and you're at a point where you want to come confess Christ as Lord publicly. It may be that God's leading you to start the process of joining this church fellowship. It may be you just need somebody to pray with you this morning, and I'd be glad to do that. Others would as well. And so we want to respond in those ways and respond through our worship. So if you would stand together as I pray for us and pray for this time of response. Father, I thank you that through the blood of Jesus, you have washed away our sin, that through the blood of Jesus, you've made us whole, that through the blood of Jesus you've cleansed us and you've redeemed us. But Lord, I'm also mindful that apart from the blood of Jesus, none of that is possible. And there may be people here today who have never truly understood the significance of the blood of Christ, the new covenant. There may be people today who are just going through the motions, just doing their religious duty, but, but their heart hasn't truly been redeemed by Christ. Their, their singular focus in life is not Jesus, it's so many other things. And so, Father, I, help you, I pray you would help us in these moments to respond as you lead us to the gospel, to trust in Christ, to thank you for the blood of Jesus, to live in response to what you've offered. We ask that you would do this in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.